what is this? You're failing three classes. Yeah, well, that's what it is. Oh man, I don't know which way to turn. It's like I always told you, man. All roads lead to God. Far out, man. YOLO! Well, as our Cactus Campus joins us, as well as our venue and our chapel and those who are with us online, you know, it was mentioned, I'm sure, in all the settings that we start a new series of messages this week uh, it's called Dangerous Sayings, and uh, it's a, a brainchild of mine when I was preparing for this year last summer and uh, mapping out the preaching calendar. I thought, you know, um, we, we all use a lot of sayings in, in our 21st century culture. We grew up with a lot of sayings, and some of them are really quaint and benign, and I don't care about them. Things like, variety is the spice of life. I don't mind that one. Uh, a stitch in time saves nine. That's a good one. Uh, a penny saved is a penny earned. I mean, these are all the sayings that we grew up with, and I, and I, and I love them. Uh, we use them often. And then there's some sayings that are just not true. You ever found that? Uh, my favorite is a watched pot never boils. That's just not true. I, I watch pots all the time, and they boil, and so I don't understand that saying. Or, or how about this one? Uh, the customer is always right. Not in my world. All right. Um, <laughs> or, or my favorite untrue saying is sticks and stones can break your bones, but names will never hurt you. We wouldn't have a counseling department if that was true. <laughs> I, I mean, there's some sayings that are just downright not true. And then there are some sayings that can or could be dangerous. The point being can be. We're not going to get too particular in this series, but there's some sayings, especially some really popular ones right now, that I think uh, merit some looking into and analyzing a bit, especially as they become entrenched in our culture and our language. This is actually going to be a really fun series for us. Uh, the sayings we have chosen are, are very much a part of our culture today. It is what it is. As long as you're happy... All roads lead to God. You only live once, and you got nothing to lose. These are things that I hear culture use, and I hear you and me use them often, and it's going to be fun to unpack these and ask the question, what do we really mean by them when we use them? Are they true? And what, if anything, does the Bible have to say about these sayings? So you're going to learn some things in this series, but I think also it's going to be an engaging series for you as well, and as we've said, even one to certainly invite people to our church through.
through. So with that said, we're gonna dive in in just a minute into our first saying, but first let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the worship that we've had here and at our Cactus Campus, at our venue and our chapel. Thank you now that we uh, open your book and, and look into your word as one congregation uh, asking you for wisdom and insight into our lives today and how we understand you and the world around us. So do that in us, we pray in Jesus' name, and we say together, amen. So the uh, first saying is probably the most popular saying that I hear people use all the time, and so do you. It's the saying, it is what it is. And this saying has become so much a part of our everyday language and culture that when I started doing my research on it a few weeks ago, or actually a couple months ago, there's been a lot written on this saying of ours. Numerous articles and blogs have been written analyzing it over the last 10 years or so. And according to an article in the New York Times Magazine from a few years ago, we can actually pinpoint when precisely this phrase was first used in our modern world. It appeared in a column in the Nebraska State Journal in 1949 as the author was describing the way that the pioneers of our country originally experienced the discovery of land in America. Uh, look up here on the monitor. This is from uh, that article written in 1949 in Nebraska. New land is harsh and vigorous and sturdy. It scorns evidence of weakness. There is nothing of sham or hypocrisy in it. It is what it is without apology. And though it would take a few decades, eventually this phrase, it is what it is, would sweep across the verbal landscape of America with the speed of a brush fire in dry season. In fact, it ramped up significantly in the 1990s. There's even a movie title by this saying in 2001. Sports figures and entertainers were using this phrase all the time by about 2003, 2004. And then the coup d'etat occurred on election day 2004 when the exit polls showed that John Kerry was beating uh, George Bush. Bush said to one of his aides in light of that, well, now say it with me, it is what it is. And everybody started using that phrase from that point on. And now it's used in business, education, internet blogs, TV sitcoms, the military, counseling offices, bars, anywhere people are talking and communicating, you run the risk of hearing it is what it is. And believe it or not, its definition is uniformly assumed and agreed upon. That the phrase itself is very similar to what grammarians call a tautology, a phrase that repeats the same thing twice in order to communicate something that saying it once would not communicate. So think about the phrase, boys will be boys, or what's done is done, that's a tautology. And so when someone says the tautological phrase, it is what it is, and then shrugs, what they're essentially trying to communicate is an acceptance of a somewhat annoying, difficult situation while simultaneously saying, let's move on. In other words, when somebody uses the phrase, it is what it is, they're admitting that there's ambiguity 
and misunderstanding or lack of understanding in the situation that's in front of them and they don't really know what to deal with it. So we say, well, it is what it is and we're gonna try to accept it as it is, but then let's move on from it. That's what the vast majority of people mean when they use this phrase. As the famous Urban Dictionary says in light of this phrase, they define it as, well, it ain't gonna change, so deal with it or not. It is what it is. And it's actually a fascinating phrase. I mean, if somebody who knew nothing about our culture was to come into our culture and hear somebody say it is what it is, on its face value, it would seem like it's just a factual, empirical statement, right? Like if I said, this is my stool, it is what it is. That's not a very engaging statement. That's just a factual statement describing my stool. But that's not how we use this phrase. No, you and I use this phrase. Now, this is very important for where we're going today to describe semi-difficult circumstances in our lives, like when you don't get that job promotion or you spend 20 bucks on lottery tickets and you don't win, or how about like when the Cleveland Browns go 0-16 in their season? <laughs> Semi-difficult circumstances in our lives. And because we don't know what to do with them and they're kind of a bummer, we say, say it with me, it is what it is. And we're saying, let's accept these semi-difficult circumstances and let's move on and be done with it. That is exactly how the vast majority of people use this phrase. So once we understand that, uh, what should we say about all of this? What, if anything, might be dangerous about constantly using this phrase to respond to the semi-difficult circumstances around us? I want to suggest to you today three things, three ways in which it is what it is, might or can be dangerous. And let me pause there before I give you the first one, because this is really important for you guys to understand. You know, some people have said to me when I told them we were doing this series, go, they said, oh good, I hate those phrases. I hate it is what it is, I hate the other ones. I don't mind that you hate it, but what you guys need to know is that I don't hate any of these phrases, save for the all roads lead to God one. I, I really don't. I, I, I'm not bothered when people use the phrase, it is what it is. I don't have an ax to grind with it. I, I really don't care at the end of the day, but I do think it's worth looking into because depending how we use it, depending on what we mean by it, there can be some danger in it. So I'm chill when it comes to this series and these sayings. I'm gonna suggest to you that, that, that it can be dangerous in certain circumstances to use this phrase, it is what it is. So let's now dive in. And the first thought I want you to chew on is this, that it can be dangerous because at face value, it's a shallow phrase. It's a shallow phrase. Here's my point. When you really and truly think about it, when you park for just a few minutes in front of this phrase that so many people use, you begin to realize that it's not a very deep or meaningful saying. I mean, it might be helpful sometimes to nudge us to accept certain things that we can't change or even to move on from things that we need to move on from, but I'm telling you, the saying itself is not designed to be used in the more rugged areas of life. It's shallow on its best day. And you're saying, how do you know? Well, the way we use the phrase, I'm telling you, gives us a way. You've heard me say it already. 
Almost all of us, if ever we use the phrase, it is what it is, now watch this, we only use it in light of semi-difficult circumstances in life. Semi-difficult circumstances. In other words, we would never use the phrase, it is what it is, if someone told us their kid just got diagnosed with cancer, would we? You would never use it if your best friend told you that his or her spouse just died. You'd never use it if somebody told you they just got mugged. And you certainly wouldn't use it in light of a discussion about the Holocaust or the genocide in Bosnia or Rwanda. I mean, can you imagine responding to any of those situations? Hey, my kid just got cancer. Well, you know, it is what it is. You would never do that. Why? Because those are deep, difficult issues of life. And the phrase, it is what it is, is too shallow for situations like that. Now, it works best when we use it in light of semi-difficult circumstances, like I missed a job promotion or the Browns didn't win or something like that. That's when we use it is what it is. And to add insult to injury, even when we do use it in light of these semi-difficult settings, now this I think is an amazing point, it doesn't necessarily communicate anything deep or meaningful on a relational level to the ones involved in these semi-difficult situations. That's not my own thought. That's why I can say I think it's a pretty good thought. I got that from my research. There was one prominent psychologist writing about this phrase, it is what it is, and listen to what she says. This was great. She says, years ago when I told my dad how upset I was that I had not been accepted into the college of my choice, he looked up and replied, well, honey, it is what it is. I looked at him in disbelief. I said, are you serious? Is that the best response you can offer me? She said, my take, my dad is missing an empathy gene. (laughs) And you know, that's the risk that you and I run when we use this phrase. I mean, think about it, by itself, just responding to a situation, it doesn't communicate empathy, identification, care, or simply the fact that we're with them in the battle. Now, it essentially says, I really don't care to process your circumstance with you on an emotional level. So get over it, shut up about it, and move on. It is what it is. In fact, I searched the Bible this week, and I don't say this to make you guys feel guilty for using it, because I use this phrase too, but I couldn't find one instance where Jesus said it is what it is. (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying that that doesn't mean we shouldn't use it, but Jesus had a lot of sayings. And he never looked at Matthew and said, well, dude, it is what it is. He never said that or anything like that. And so here's my point. We're going to move on. If you want to keep things shallow and at arm's length relationally with those around you, and sadly, some of you actually do, then regularly respond to others around you with it is what it is, because that will do the trick. But most of us want a bit more. Now, as you're chewing on that, notice with me a second and even more potentially dangerous aspect of this very popular saying, and that is that it can be dangerous because it can be dismissive and defeatist. It it, it can be dismissive and defeatist. 
There was a uh, article, I'm telling you, everybody's writing about this phrase. There was an article in a military magazine uh, a few years back uh, on this phrase, it is what it is. It's an online magazine called The Military Leader. And in this article, it's written by a company commander in Baghdad, writing about his experiences in 2007. And he writes about when he first heard uh, his commander starting to use this phrase, it is what it is. He says, I heard the unit's battalion commander speak. I heard it is what it is more times than I could count. Uh, The Iraqi army unit you're partnering with can't show up to an operation on time, but it is what it is. Uh, We've got a really small post here, so parking will be tight. It is what it is. Uh, We took a lot of casualties in this area, so you should be prepared for that. It is what it is. He says he used the phrase to explain or rather excuse action and inaction, misfortune and blessing, success and failure. He goes on to conclude, and I thought this was rather profound. He says, the problem with it is what it is, is that it abdicates responsibility, shuts down creative problem solving, and concedes defeat. He says, a leader who says it is what it is, is a leader who faced a challenge, couldn't overcome it, and explained away the episode as an inevitable, unavoidable force of nature. Whoa. And he's fair about it. He does go on to admit in the article that it can be used this way, that there are certain circumstances in the military and in life where they are beyond our control, and so it is what it is. But he says he noticed that people in the military were using it in circumstances that we could change, that with a little creative problem solving and a little perseverance might be turned around, but before we could get to that... He's saying we slapped and is what it is on it. And guys, I think there's something to this. I think there are plenty of semi-difficult situations in our lives where we might easily try to dismiss them and wave the white flag with a very quick it is what it is. And the Bible actually speaks to this one pointedly. Probably the poster child for this is an Old Testament character all of you have heard about before. His name is Job. Most of you are familiar with the story of Job. You've just never postured it in light of this phrase, it is what it is. Let's do so right now. Uh, Job, as many of you might know, was a character in the Old Testament who at one point lost all of his money. He lost all of his children, uh, all of his assets. And then to add insult to all this injury, he lost his health. (laughs) And you guys remember chapter two, the only thing he had left after he lost everything was his wife and she wasn't very helpful, right? I mean, she's the one that coined the saying, uh, just curse God and die, which is not a very helpful wife at that point. And so most of the book, it's a very long book, 42 chapters long, is about Job wrestling with these difficult circumstances he has. And throughout most of the book, he gets rather defeatist and even dismissive in the process. If you don't believe me, look at what he says by chapter seven. And this is very indicative of what he would say throughout the first 35 plus chapters of the book. He says in chapter seven, remember that my life is but breath. My eye will not see good again. So he who goes down to Sheol or hell does not come up. He will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. (laughs) Pretty depressing words 
pretty defeatist words, and for good reason. As we established earlier, there are some situations in life that are very, very difficult. Losing your livelihood, your children, uh, even your health. Those are very difficult things to deal with. And we understand why Job would get that way. He's essentially saying, I'm going through hell here. And it's not going to get any better. And someday I'm going to die, hopefully soon. And then I'll be forgotten and it will all be over. That's Job's mindset. Defeatist and even dismissive. But then as Job continues this mindset, I'm telling you, for the next 30 plus chapters, and all the while failing to realize that God is not finished with him yet, and that God is in the habit of showing up in our lives in the most unsuspecting times, the end of the story of Job is a climactic head turner, if there ever was one. Because as some of us know, God does eventually show up on the scene in Job's life, and reveals himself to Job. And the very first question that God has for Job is so incredibly revealing of Job's life. Look at what it says in chapter 38, verses one and two. It says, then the Lord spoke to Job, don't you love this, out of the storm. So if you ever think God isn't with you in the storm, he is. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, who is this? that obscures my plans with words without knowledge. <laughs> I tell you guys all the time that God loves you. What I don't tell you is that sometimes he's gonna be really tough on you, amen? He is. So sometimes you're crying out to God and you're saying, where are you, God? What are you doing, God? For 35 chapters, you're crying out to God with your dismissive and your defeatist attitude. And here's what God's gonna do. He's gonna show up and say, who is this? that obscures my plans with words without knowledge. What a profound and powerful thing God says to Job. Essentially, God is saying, let's not miss this. Hey, Job, I know your circumstances are dire and your situation stinks, but your words that connote a defeatist and dismissive mindset are completely unfounded. You have forgotten who I am and what I can do in your life. And then if you think that's brutal, for the next four chapters, God riddles Job with rhetorical question after rhetorical question about God's abilities and wisdom and power, hammering home to Job that God is in the habit of not being done with us, even in the most difficult circumstances of life. And the pinnacle of the entire book is reached in chapter 42 when Job finally changes his defeatist tune. Look at what he says it says, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I don't know about you, but I don't see any mindset of it is what it is in this. Do you? I mean, Job has completely changed his tune. The Bible calls it repentance. It means to turn from a sinful or bad attitude to a godly and right one. And it was at this point, and only at this point, that things begin to look up for Job as his family, his fortune, and his health would be restored. But don't miss. It was only after he stopped saying it is what it is in some sort of dismissive and defeatist fashion. It was only after he recognized that it was not time to throw in the white towel, that it was not time to surrender, that God 
who was always hounding us as the hound of heaven, was continually hounding Job, and good days were still ahead of him. And that's the point for you and me, is that we are tempted in our lives to use the phrase, it is what it is, to throw in the white towel, surrender to enemy forces, and say, I give up. There's nothing I can do to change this crappy circumstance that I'm in. It is what it is. I hear Christians say that all the time. You know what breaks my heart more than anything? Now, now don't miss this. I hear Christians use that in light of their failed marriage. Marriage is on the rocks. Separation is at hand. You've tried a lot of things. Nothing seems to work. So eventually you say, well... It is what it is. And, and never mind the fact that God says I hate divorce. Never mind the fact that God says I hold out hope in the most dire of circumstances and it ain't over until it's over. Never mind the fact that God says all of that. We're ready to give up. Or, or how about with your kids? You know, Neil, who funnily coined that phrase when our kids take stupid pills, you know, over and over and over again. And you just think, when is this kid ever going to get it right? And eventually you get to the point where you say, I'm not sure he or she will get it right. It is what it is. And we give up on the God, as we talked about last week, the God of second chances. I mean, I could go on and on. How about when your emotions like depression and anxiety don't go away after years of therapy? We're tempted to say, well, it is what it is. The dead-end job that we hate, it is what it is. Debt that seems insurmountable year after year. It is what it is. And though there might be sometimes, I'm a realist, where these situations are this way and they very well might not be reversible, here's what you need to hear today. There's another argument to be made that with God in the picture, we don't know what he might do, just like with Job, and we have no idea whether it's time to say it is what it is or not. We don't know if the battle is over and that there could be no redemption to be found. Here's what we do know for sure. And that is that if we throw in a defeatist and dismissive, it is what it is, then like Job, we will have a very long 35 plus chapters of misery, hopelessness, and joylessness. Amen? You will. I had a guy come up to me after the service last night and say, man, I'm on like chapter 33. I wish somebody had told me like 30 chapters ago not to think this way. I said, well, you got two more chapters to repent of, right? (laughs) And again, I'm not suggesting that every time we use it is what it is, we're using it that way. I'm saying that it can be used that way. And I think many Christians use it that way. Now, when the chips are down, for those of us who have faith, here's what we need to resonate more then it is what it is. We resonate with Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Let me ask you, would you rather have that or it is what it is? I'd rather have that, thank you. I'd rather be a man or woman of faith who trusts God when the chips are down and says though there is weeping in the night, What's in the morning? Joy comes in the morning. Don't cave in, gang. God just might have something better for you. And if I know him, he does. So it is what it is. It can be shallow. It can be dismissive and defeatist. And then a third and final thought, and I've saved the best for last, because I would posit, you that this, posit to you that this is the most important 
understanding of this often used saying. You ready for this? And that is that it can be dangerous because it confuses providence with fate. It confuses, confuses providence with fate. Now, I know I've thrown a lot at you, but I need you to laser beam focus on this final one because this is not only important, but I'm telling you, many Christians do not understand the difference between providence and what our world is into, and that is fate. And when I hear many people use the phrase, it is what it is, especially many people in popular culture, I'm almost positive that they're using it in light of what we call fate. What is fate? Uh, Fate is simply that blind, unknowable, semi-deterministic influence that people seem to think guides what happens to them in this world. But Webster's Dictionary defines fate as an inevitable outcome, a determining cause by which things are believed to come to be or happen as they do. And the phrase, it is what it is, for many people, is kind of chalking their life up to fate. They're trying to accept and make sense of what has happened in their lives and maybe even seem to, seem to find some kind of purpose behind it. And so track this with me. A bad thing happens to them and in their mind they think, well, what happened was inevitable. It's kind of part of the plan. It was going to happen. It is what it is. I, I think that's how many people think when they're using this phrase. And those we're going to see in a minute, there is indeed purpose and deterministic influences behind the veil of the universe. The problem with fate, now don't miss this, is that fate is without personality. Fate is unknowable and it's impersonal. I mean, to be sure, when was the last time you ever heard somebody pray to fate? Anybody ever heard somebody pray to fate? I mean, there's plenty of people in our modern culture who are spiritually confused and they believe in this thing called fate. You know, I mean, they might say, well, I met the love of my life. It was, say it with me, fate, you know, and so so happened, it was fate. And I think to myself, well, did you give thanks to fate? Did you say, dear fate, I want to praise you and thank you for being so operative in my life. And in the matchless name of fate, I pray, amen. I've never heard anybody pray like that. When have you ever heard somebody talk about a relationship that they have with fate? I've never heard that. I've never heard somebody say, you know what? I I grew grew up in a home that believed in fate, but then when I was in college, I fell away from fate. But now that I'm older and wiser, I've come back to fate. Praise fate. I've never heard anybody say that. And the reason is, is because it would be silly to think of fate that way. Why? Because fate has no personality. It has no name. It has no holy book written about it. It's absolutely unknowable and unidentifiable, except for the marker, it is what it is. And yet our culture tends to chalk things up to fate. Now, let's compare and contrast that with what we call providence. Providence is simply an age-old theological term that maintains, now watch this, that there is, pers- there is a personal, knowable, intimate, loving, just, and transcendent God behind everything that happens in this world. But providence adds personality and true knowledge to where fate leaves off. 
I found it fascinating in my study this week that even Webster's Dictionary gets this. You remember that it defined fate as an inevitable outcome, a determining cause by which uh, things come to be or happen as they do. And yet look at how Webster's Dictionary, the same dictionary, defines providence. I loved this. They define providence as divine guidance and care. God conceived as the power sustaining and guiding human destiny. And there it is. You see, now you got personality. You have God who has a name and he's guiding and caring for our very lives, sustaining and guiding human destiny. Now we're getting somewhere and what a marked difference from fate. Fate again is that blind, unknowable determinism. Providence is this divine guidance and care, God sustaining our very lives. And though this idea of providence is all over the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, probably the most clear and pointed description of God's providence comes from a prayer in the Old Testament when King David is handing off the reins to his son Solomon, the reins of the kingdom. And look at what he says in this prayer. This is good. First Chronicles 29, 11 through 13. David says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. See, here you got providence all over the place. And and some of you notice I put two different colors here. Go back to the previous slide. I put yellow and red. I, I did that for a quick didactic moment. There's actually two things operating here that theologians talk about, and you've heard both of these things before, sovereignty and providence. Some people don't know the difference. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about his absolute control, his absolute lordship, over all the universe. That's what we mean by sovereignty. Now watch this. Providence, however, is a subset of sovereignty that, re, that refers to God's prearrangement of things, God working through the order of your life to mete out his sovereignty, his control in your life. So that's why I put it in yellow and red. The yellow phrases are phrases of sovereignty. The red are phrases of providence. So when it says everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is a dominion, your head over all those are sovereignty phrases. But then notice that it gets down to the, to the more intimate parts of your life. Both riches and honor in our lives come from you. That's his providence. Then go to the next screen. And in your hand, God, is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. So every time God pulls a fast one in your life and strengthens you or blesses you, we've called that his providence in your life. And here's my point, because I'm not trying to give you a theology lesson here. This is eminently practical. Both providence and sovereignty give death blows to fate. They do. It blows fate out of the water because it screams to you and I that God is knowable, personal, intimate, powerful, transcendent, and very involved in our lives. And the point is this, that if you must use the phrase, it is what it is, and again, I'm certainly okay with using it, 
then let's use it in a clear and and easily understandable way of describing God's providence. I mean, if you use it this week, say it this way. It is what it is because a loving, just, caring God is in full control of my life and guiding everything that comes my way. It is what it is because every hair on my head is numbered. It is what it is because not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his will. It is what it is because God is in the habit of showing up in Job chapter 38 after 37 chapters of misery and saying, enough is enough. Let's right the wrongs. It is what it is because God is God. Amen to that. See, that's what we need to start using when we use this phrase. It is what it is. And and, and again, here's my point. I'm not trying to harp on you guys. I'm really not. You know I love you. But how many times do we fall out of this mindset? I mean, I I joked about it when we were setting up this series, but even when I hear Christians use the phrase, it is what it is, I think to myself, really, are you using that in light of a providential and sovereign God who's in absolute control of your life right now? I don't think that's the way many of us use the phrase. We forget every day who God is and what he wants to do in our lives. And maybe today we'll draw a line in the sand to say, I don't want to forget anymore. Closing story, (laughs) funny story. If you were here last uh, week in Easter, uh, you heard me close with the story of the bat in the bedroom. And uh, some of you remember the story. If you didn't, you can get it online. Real quick recap, I woke up a few weeks ago and had left the back, back door of our deck open for some air and a bat had flown in my room overnight, was flying around for who knows how long and Kim and I woke up and eventually got it out of the room. I captured it, let it go. Big mistake, uh, as you'll hear in a minute, and uh, called it the bad in the bedroom story. And I did have a very profound spiritual point, so you need to get online and understand what I was getting at. So it was in between services last week, uh, Easter, and I'm in my office resting, and I get an email from uh, one of the doctors in our church. And this guy is, is a very, very good doctor. He's the head of medical toxicology at Banner Health. And uh, he sends me a quick email saying, it's very pointed. He said, I'm sure you've been told this already, uh, but you would be suicidal to not get a rabies vaccination after having a bat in your bedroom. And I'm thinking, uh, Neil never told me that. I mean, nobody ever told me any of that. And uh, no, I did not know that. And so... I texted him and said, well, that seems kind of aggressive. I didn't get bit. I don't know anything about that. It was just in my bedroom. He texted me back, a bunch of long scholarly articles on how the CDC recommends uh, in the last decade or so that because there have been cases of bats in the bedroom, uh, that even if you didn't get bit, you don't know if you got bit because you were sleeping, and that rats do carry rabies, and you don't want to die of rabies, so might as well get the vaccinations. So I texted my doctor at Mayo and uh, said, what do you think? And he said, well, let me talk to the other doctor. And so they spent about a day uh, in the email chain talking to each other. And eventually, my doctor at Mayo got back to me and said, yeah, I think you need to um, get vaccinated. And I said, well, what, what, what does that entail? And he said, well, you, you, you got to go to the emergency room because they're the only ones that can, you know, administer the vaccination. Uh, and then once you get out of the emergency room, you got to go back three times uh, on three different occasions to get further vaccinations. And, and I'm tired. It's after Easter. I have a ton on my plate. This is our busy season. And, and, and of course, you never want to tell a doctor you don't have time for this, right? So, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I don't have time for this. And I hate emergency rooms. I mean, I don't mind visiting you guys in the emergency rooms. 
but I've never been in an ER room that didn't take less than three hours. I'm not complaining, but they could speed it up a little bit, and they, uh, they don't. And so I tried to plan it right, you know, and I, I got to the ER at 6.15 in the morning, right at shift change time, and, and, uh, and I was the only one in the ER. Can you believe it? Only one. And it still would take three hours for me to get out of there. And, and I got to tell you, starting the night before, I, uh, I was starting to lose it a little bit. I don't lose it very often. You can ask my kids. I, I, I'm pretty self-controlled. But I was really feeling the pressure of this, and I was pretty frustrated by it all, just thinking, this is, this is overkill, no pun intended. This is just crazy. And, uh, and, and I didn't really want to do it, but I, I, I tried to listen to my doctors, and I just found myself getting very angry about the whole thing. I mean, really just getting fumed about it. And then when I get in the ER, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there and, 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 and I was just really in a bad way because, you know, you, you go through triage and then the insurance and then a nurse comes in, third time I'm telling the story. And then the PA comes in, fourth time I'm telling the story. And then they say, well, we have to order it from the pharmacy. Like, where's the pharmacy? In Mexico? I mean, I don't know, you know, and I'm like going, I mean, I'm just sitting there in this ER and I'm starting to fume. And finally, the nurse comes in and she goes, I kid you not, she goes, okay, I'm ready to give you your shots. And I said, what do you mean, shots? She said, well, you're going to get shots. And I said, how many shots? And I kid you not, she says, six. I said, nobody told me that. And I tried to make it light. And, you know, some people have a sense of humor and some don't. And I said, you're going to enjoy this, aren't you? She said, I'm not going to enjoy this at all. You're the one that wanted the shots. <laughs> Man, I'll tell you what. It's one of those moments where I wish I wasn't a Christian and a pastor. I wish I wasn't. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm just fuming, you know, and... And, 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 and right at that moment, as I'm about to get six shots, one nurse on one side, one on the other, boom, like that, you know, I'm... I'm just thinking to myself, you know, um, you better change your attitude because you got to go through this three more times. I mean, not six shots. The good news, I only get one shot the other three times, but I'm going, I mean, this, this is just nuts and, and, and you're going to be miserable. Now, see where I'm going with this? Jamie, you're going to be miserable for about 35 more chapters and, unless you change your attitude. And, and, and you know what was wrong with my attitude? Now, I'm not trying to be too nitpicky here, but tell me if I'm right. I had forgotten who was in control of my life, amen? I had forgotten who knew. Now, you're gonna laugh at this, but it's true. Who knew before the foundation of the world that I would have a bat in my bedroom two weeks ago? <laughs> God. Who knew before the foundation of the world that that doctor would email me and say you'd be suicidal to not get a rabies vaccination? God knew that. Who knew that my doctor at Mayo would agree who knew that I would be stuck in a three, in ER for three hours? Who knew all of that? Say it with me. God. And his providence is operative in my life. And, and, and I mean this sincerely. I wasn't even that far in my study. As I started to think those thoughts, I thought of Michael Card years ago who wrote a song called Joy in the Journey. And he basically argues, there is joy in the journey. There's light to be found on the way. And I thought, you know, Jamie, you might actually start to enjoy this journey if you would just trust who's absolutely in control. 
It's amazing when the uh, fourth person came in the room, the final doctor, she was a PA, and I tried some of my humor on her, and it worked, so we started a good relationship there. And uh, she said, how did this happen? And I told her about Easter Sunday, and I'm a minister and all of that. And she said, oh, I go to church. I said, where do you go? She goes, I go to Redemption Gilbert, which is Schrader's church. And she started talking to me a little bit about her salvation experience, and I could tell it was encouraging for her to find a fellow Christian in that environment. And then at one point, I got up to use the restroom, because I was there for three hours, did I mention that? And so I get up to use the restroom, and I'm walking into the bathroom, and I hear this voice saying, Pastor Jamie. And one of the radiological texts there uh, is a member of our church. He said, it's just so good to see you here. And I said, I wish I could say the same. But, but I'm, I'm developing a new attitude here, right? So I, I said, man, it's great to meet you too. And I could tell it was an encouraging conversation to him. And then when I went back Friday for my seventh shot, uh, the gal there was a believer from another church. And I found myself just encouraging people. And I thought, again, who's in control here? God. I would posit before you that rabies shots are a semi-difficult circumstance in life. They're really not that big of a deal. Some of you are gonna send me emails saying you shouldn't have got them. Don't, I know that. My wife's telling me that, so you know I get that. But I did, and if anything, pray that I'm okay, but I'm going to be. The, the, the point is, is that in semi-difficult circumstances, even in difficult circumstances, it does our soul good to remember who's in control. He's providential. He's sovereign. There's nothing that happens to us in which his care cannot guide us through it. And if what we mean by it is what it is, that, then let's say it. And let's say it a lot. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that even in the difficult scenarios of our lives, and some people here and at Cactus Venue and Chapel and online are in some real pain right now. And God, if they take anything away from our words today, may they, they take the words of David away with them, that yours, oh God, is the greatness. Yours is the strength, the glory, the majesty. In your hand is the power to strengthen everyone. God, may we understand your providence that way. And Lord, no matter what situations we might find ourselves in this week, may we not chalk anything up to fate. May we not be dismissive or defeatist, and may we certainly not be shallow. If we use it as what it is, Lord, may we use it with a trainload of, your, of an understanding of your providence and sovereignty behind it, and knowing that you are in control of our lives. Breakthrough work in our circumstances, we pray to your good and glory and our joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name and we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.